0: The following resource is from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources.
1: All right, let's go ahead and start be my desire to get done with the section on Scripture tonight if possible, so we're going to have to maybe go into a little less detail than we've been doing, and that's very hard for me to do, very hard, but uh, huh? I love going into these things. My feeling is, you know, in some cases you never know whether we're ever going to go through this again, you know, so you might as well do it well, but I also know that there's another 80 or 90 chapters in Grudem's book, and those all have good things in them too, and so kind of like a kid in a candy shop, it's hard to know you know what to do. But uh, we're talking about Scripture, the doctrine of Scripture. And we've already talked about the authority of Scripture. We have uh, we began really our overall uh, subject after Jason uh, started. We began talking about Christ's view of Scripture. And that's so important. Um, Christ's view of Scripture could not be higher. And I think it's so important for us to live up to that, that we would deal with Scripture and think about Scripture the way Jesus did. And uh, I guess I take from that um, a few things, but one is that Jesus Himself would rather die than break Scripture. He'd rather die than disobey a command from God. Isn't that true? And so that's something that we should challenge ourselves with as well. We went from there to talk about the authority of Scripture. We know that Scripture is authoritative because it's the Word of God. Uh, we really look uh, beyond the issue of the, the words, of the actual text, etc., beyond that to the author. Who is the author of Scripture? And yes, there are human authors, but in a, in a, in a marvelous sense, God is the ultimate author. And so that's where we get the authority. It's from the author. And so the authority of Scripture. We went from there to talk about inerrancy. We did that last time. Um, I gave you that sheet on alleged errors and discrepancies in the Bible. I hope that didn't hurt you at all. I hope you didn't read through and s- struggle with it. But I think it's good for us as we're family here to look at what people would say. Um, and I, th- I actually find encouragement from looking over the list of errors that people find in the Bible to realize how paltry and pathetic they are. I mean, really... You know that they lose a digit, you know, a number, you know, in some census somewhere, or trying to line up the genealogies and all that. If that's the best that they can do, uh, to me, it's so clear that the Bible is the Word of God and that we can bank on it. Okay. Now, from there, uh, we were talking about the the characteristic of Scripture known as clarity, the clarity of Scripture. Another more uh, complex name for this is the perspicuity of Scripture perspicuity of Scripture. Actually, the very first seminary paper I wrote was on the perspicuity of Scripture. So I'm going to write that out. Perspicuity equals clarity. What do we mean by that? Well, the idea, the basic idea is that the Scripture is clear. It's essentially clear that we can understand what it says. It is not true that only Bible scholars can understand the Bible properly. Now, I want you to understand how important this is for me personally as a uh, person who was born in the Roman Catholic tradition uh, who has come to uh, Protestant convictions. We know that the Reformation in the 16th century was uh, about many things, but one of the the things that, that the Reformation was about was about the authority of Scripture, sola scriptura. By the Bible alone would we understand the will of God. The Roman Catholic Church denied, essentially denied the perspicuity of Scripture, the clarity of Scripture. They said that you cannot understand the Bible. It's too complex. You're going to make errors. If we print the Bible in the vernacular, if we get the Bible out and circulate it uh, among all the people, there's going to be heresies and sects and groups that will spring up. And there will be all of these problems if you allow the laity, the lay people, to read the Bible for themselves. And so, the as I, this may not still be true, but at one point, the number one burner of Bibles in history is the Roman Catholic Church. They would collect these Bibles written in the vernacular, in the English language, let's say, or in French or whatever was the common tongue, and they would collect them and they would burn them. And why did they burn them? Because they denied the perspicuity of Scripture. They believed that you needed the Catholic Magisterium, the Catholic priests, to tell you what the Scripture was. Problem with that. Another problem with that is that they weren't actually telling anybody what the Bible taught. You had the Mass, and that's it. And if you didn't speak Latin, you didn't even understand that. And so you just go and 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 get nothing out of it. And they believed that was okay because. Their doctrine of sacramentalism is all you need to do is be in the building. You just needed to take part in the Lord's Supper or the baptism. You didn't have to understand a thing. Of course you didn't. You were an infant when you were baptized. What could you understand? But just that you went through it, it was enough. A benefit would come to you. Well, I don't believe that. I believe that God intended the Scripture to be understood by people, that we're supposed to work it through, read the words, we're supposed to think about it. And I think the Scripture testifies to it, doesn't it? If you look at some of these verses, you look at Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 6 and 7. You can turn in your Bibles or look on the sheet. Uh, but in Deuteronomy 6, and we went through this in the Acts seminar on parenting, this is a very, very important uh, verse on, um, on parenting. Deuteronomy 6. I'm actually going to begin at verse 1. It says, "These are the commands, decrees and laws the Lord your God directed me to teach you to observe in the land that you are crossing the Jordan and possess so that you, your children and their children after them may fear the Lord as long as you live by keeping all his decrees and commands that I give you and so that you may enjoy long life. Hear, O Israel, and be careful to obey, so that it may go well with you and that you may increase greatly in a land flowing with milk and honey, just as the Lord the God of your fathers promised you." Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God The Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be upon your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down, and when you get up. Now that's such an incredible thing. In the NIV, we talked about this during the parenting class. It's always good to remember and have... Repetition, especially on this issue. In the NIV, it says, impress them on your children. Impress what? What are we supposed to impress on our children? Deuteronomy 6 7. The commandments are to be impressed on our children. Well, this word impress literally means, or in, in one of the older translations, if you went literally, it'd be to wet. To wet them. You know what a whetstone is? What do you use a whetstone for? sharpening okay how do you do that yeah and the key to using a wet wet stone is repetition right you don't rub it once and then it's sharp you have to rub it again and again and again in a certain pattern that they tell you how to do it and then it's sharp so gradually the edge gets sharpened and that is the word that deuteronomy uses you are to wet them into your children sharpen them into your children that implies repetition doesn't it but behind it is implied that your children can understand them. You see that, your children can understand them. The scripture, therefore, the book of Deuteronomy was written for children. It was written for them, and so you are to take the time to teach it to them. Also, look at jo- uh, Joshua chapter eight, verse thirty-four and thirty-five. You've got the verses, I think, in your hand out there, but I'll just read it. Joshua 8, 34 and thirty-five. Afterward, Joshua read all the words of the law the blessings and the curses, just as it is written in the book of the law, there was not a word of all that Moses had commanded that Joshua did not read to the whole assembly of Israel, including the women and children and the aliens who lived among them. Now, what does that prove to you concerning this topic of the perspicuity or clarity of Scripture? Everybody should listen because everybody can what? Understand. That's the whole point. It's not a secret language that only the scholars can understand. So the Word of God is meant for everybody. The Word of God is meant for men, women, and children. Everyone is to listen to them. Everyone is to understand them. Also, 2 Kings 23.2, you don't have to turn there, but on your sheet it's printed. Josiah, it says, went up to the temple of the Lord with the men of Judah, the people of Jerusalem, the priests and the prophets, all the people from the least to the greatest. He read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant which had been found in the temple of the Lord. And there are many other occasions like this. After they came back from the exile uh, in uh, Ezra, they gather everybody together and read. And they're, they're there for hours and the people are wailing and they're crying over their sin. They're convicted. But again, the assumption is that the words are essentially clear. The words are essentially clear. If Scripture were not clear, there would be no point in reading it to everyone or in writing it on tablets so all could read the words. In Psalm 19.7, it says, The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, listen, making wise the simple. What does simple mean, the simple? What is a simple person? Childlike? This is not a scholar. This is not an advanced thinker. This is somebody who's a beginner. Maybe even somebody who's uh, not all that sharp mentally. So we think about you know, a derogatory term would be a simpleton, that kind of thing. But either way, the point is a simple individual should go where if he wants to become wise? To the Scripture. So the Scripture makes wise the simple. You want to grow in your understanding, you want to go grow in your, in your knowledge of the, of the world and of God and of yourself and everything. You go to the Scripture. Psalm 119, verse 130. The unfolding of your words gives light, it gives understanding to the simple. That is a great verse to encourage me in expository preaching. The word unfolding means to just take a text and just unpack it. Just simply explain what's there. And when that happens, people understand. People see it, and in a way they hadn't before. I remember after one sermon I preached in Romans, Romans chapter 5, I was going through assurance of salvation, and a woman was visiting from Florida. She came up and she had tears in her eyes, never forget it, and she said, you know, all my life I've struggled with the topic of assurance of salvation. Could I know for sure whether I was a Christian? And I listened today, and now I can see because it's right on the page, and I've got it for life. For the rest of my life, I'll see that it's printed there, and I can read it myself. So the unfolding of the words gives understanding, and then it's permanent. They can take it and read it for themselves. So the Catholic Church is wrong in holding back the Scriptures from the laity, or at least they were for most of their history in doing that. I think they've seen that there was no way to hold it back ultimately. The Scriptures are meant for everybody. And then in the book of Proverbs, chapter 1, verse 1 through 5, the Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel, for attaining wisdom and discipline. Now, by the way, all the words for here explain why Solomon wrote the book of Proverbs. Why is it there? It's for these things. It's for attaining wisdom and discipline. It's for understanding the words of insight. It's for acquiring a discipline and prudent life, doing what is right and just and fair, for giving prudence to the simple, knowledge and discretion to the young. Do you see that? Let the wise listen and add to their learning and let their discerning get guidance. I want to tell you, I've just encouraged you know, uh, Andy Wynn so, so much for the way he's conducting our youth ministry here. Because many youth ministries are conducted with, a, with a, a negligence, I would say, toward the Word of God. They're not focusing on the Word of God. It's more about entertainment than anything else. But he knows that the Word of God was meant for everybody, including youth. Some might say, especially for youth. That's a key time for them to be trained in the Scriptures, right? And so he's conducting his ministry in an admirable way, the very way that he said he would when I first interviewed him. The Word of God is for everybody. And so the essential clarity of Scripture is there. God's Word is the perfect place for the young and simple to begin their quest for truth. Psalm 119, verse 105, very famous. Your Word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path, right? So if the Word of God is not clear if if it's not understandable then how could you say that the word of god is a lamp to your feet and a light to your path it wouldn't be it'd be like a uh well it'd be like most of the flashlights in my house the batteries are burned out i don't know what it is you know every time i reach for a flashlight the batteries are going out. could be that they're entertaining and i see my children playing with them from time to time but at any rate that's no light if it's not clear Paul says, uh, uh, concerning speaking in tongues, says if the trumpet doesn't give us a clear sound, who will follow its, its command? And so the same also with the written word. If it's not clear, then what good is it? It must be clear. And it is. So it's a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. So I guess what I'm saying overall in this section is that the Bible frequently affirms its own clarity. It affirms its own clarity. Secondly, the moral and spiritual qualities needed for right understanding. This is not to say that it's equally clear to everybody. Nor is it to say that every passage is equally clear. We're going to talk about that in a minute. But first, let's talk about what moral qualities you would need to have in order to understand the Scriptures. First of all, unbelievers under conviction by the Spirit can understand enough for salvation. Do you see that? Doesn't that make sense? If they couldn't understand enough for salvation, how are they going to get saved? And so they can understand enough to be saved as God opens up their minds, as God regenerates them, I guess. That's a key doctrinal teaching, but they can understand that. But overall, you must be a believer to understand the Scriptures fully. You must be a believer in all of its spiritual sense. First Corinthians 2.14 says, The man without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. He cannot understand them because they are spiritually discerned. What does this mean? He cannot understand. What does that teach you? First of all, who's the he? Who are we referring to in 1 Corinthians 2.14? A natural man, an unbeliever. What does this tell you about that individual, male or female? What does it tell you about this person? They cannot understand. Why not? Why is it that they can't? Why is it you get in the Bible, they read it, and they don't see anything? What? They're in spiritual darkness. In spiritual darkness. These are spiritual things, they're spiritually discerned. That is the very essence of unregenerate, the unregenerate state. They see no value to spiritual things. They have no interest in the things of God. They are blinded. The God of this age, the Scripture says, has blinded their eyes so they cannot understand the glory of God and the spiritual truths. You know, But Jesus said, praise God for your eyes that they can see and your ears that they can hear. You should give glory to God if you understand spiritual truth because He worked it in you. And so you must be born again. You must be born again in order to understand the Bible. This is an absolute prerequisite. You must have the indwelling Holy Spirit. And why? Because the Holy Spirit is your teacher. He is your guide. He illuminates the scripture. That's a key doctrinal teaching, the illumination of the scriptures. If you look take a minute and look at uh, Luke chapter 24 Luke 24 uh, verse 45. I don't think it's in your outline anywhere, but no. So good, you can just add this one. This is really amazing. All right, uh, beginning of verse forty-four. Luke. Somebody read verse uh, Luke twenty-four. Luke twenty-four, verse forty-four and forty-five.
0: their minds so
1: they could understand the Scriptures. Do you see that verse? Isn't that phenomenal? Verse 45. Then He opened their minds so that they could understand the Scriptures. Who's the He? Jesus. How did He do that? <laughs> how did He get into their brains and do something so that they could understand? Answer, I don't have the first idea how He did that. He's God. He can do that. You mean that my brain is in his hands? Yes, that's what it says. He opened their minds. To what end? So that they could understand the scriptures. I'm not saying they were unregenerate before that, but there are some things that you just don't see, some things you can't understand until God works them in you. By the way, this is is one of my uh, favorite verses for exhorting somebody who's afraid to memorize books of the Bible. Say, I can't do it. I won't remember it. You know, I don't know how to do it. I'll forget and all that. I said, go and memorize Luke 24, first. Then he opened their minds so that they could understand the scriptures. All right, um, I, my, I've told some of you this story before. My professor, Christy Wilson, missionary professor, had people memorizing individual verses. Um, I prefer memorizing books of the Bible because I think it's better, but it's better to memorize individual verses than nothing. And so Christy Wilson would encourage people and this one man wanted to memorize John three sixteen. And so that was his goal. He wanted to memorize John 3.16. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. That's it. He wanted to memorize that. Three months of working on it. Every day he still couldn't say it without looking at the, at the page. Three months. And uh, I remember gentle Christy Wilson. What a godly man. He's gone on to be with the Lord. But a missionary in Afghanistan. Amazing story. Different other things to tell. But anyway, he, um, he said in a gentle way. He said... This man was so dense that after three months of trying every day, he still couldn't recite John 3.16. So dense. But then suddenly he got it. And after that, the Lord blessed him and opened his mind and he memorized over 2,000 verses of Scripture over the next three years. So what was going on for those three months? God was testing him. Just like God does, He tests us, right? To see if He really wanted it. I think the amazing thing is not that it took him that long, but that he didn't what? Give up. Ninety nine point nine percent of other people, three months, give up. Two months, one month, give up. He didn't give up. He just kept at it and kept at it. And then God opened his mind and blessed him. So I might exhort you to memorize Scripture. I might exhort you to memorize a book of the Bible. One of Paul's epistles. Memorize a short one, like Philippians or Colossians or something. And and God might test you, but after a while you'll look back and you'll say, That was one of the best things that I ever did. One of the best things I ever did to memorize Scripture. Because as you do it, He's going to open your mind. You're going to start seeing some things. So, He has the power to take the veil off your eyes so that you see things in the text that you never saw before. You didn't know it was there. He has the power to do that. All right. Um, We're talking now about the topic of the spiritual state in order to understand the Scriptures. Ignorant and unstable people as well as false teachers and the devil can twist Scripture. They can. Don't be intimidated or surprised if somebody quotes Scripture to you. It's not, it's not a shocking thing if you're at the door and someone from a cult comes and quotes Scripture to you. It doesn't prove anything because the devil quoted Scripture to Jesus when tempting Him, you remember? He will command His angels concerning you and they'll lift you up in their hands so you not strike a foot against a stone. He quoted that to Jesus. Uh, In 2 Peter 3.16, Paul writes the same thing in all his letters speaking them of these matters. His letters contain some things that are hard to understand which ignorant and unstable people distort as they do the other Scriptures to their own destruction. Now, you can see how the Catholic Church might take that verse and just put a blanket restriction on all laity that they would not, therefore, be able to deal with the Scriptures at all. Well, that was wrong. But it's wrong for us on the other side to say that there is not such a thing as ignorance and therefore misinterpretations of Scripture. There are. And so we do see the twisting or the ignorance of Scripture that does come in. Now, what is the definition of the clarity of Scripture? Wayne Grudem gives us this. The clarity of Scripture means that the Bible is written in such a way that its teachings are able to be understood by all who would read it seeking God's help and being willing to follow it. It's not like you need some interpretive key or clue from some cave in the Himalayas. You know what I'm saying? And that if you make that trek to that cave in the Himalayas and you get that interpretive key, then you can come back and you'll understand the Scriptures. They're, they're fine in the way they're written. It's not that. They're, they're written just fine. They're written clear enough so that you can understand it. Um, Jay Stafford Wright said, Scri- Scripture is clear enough for the simplest person to live by it. Scripture is deep enough to form an inexhaustible mind for readers of the highest intellectual cap- uh, capacity. Isn't that true? I mean, it's simple enough for the kids, but it keeps scholars busy the rest of their lives. That's the amazing part of Scripture. It's like the ocean that way, isn't it? You can take kids down to the ocean and they can play at the edge. And they can have a good time and they can partake and they can go as deep as they want, as deep as you feel comfortable with, especially if there's sharks swimming around. I know there was some sharks last summer, but they can play there, but also you can go out to certain areas that's deeper than, than anybody could explore. You know, unless you have a bathysphere or something. I mean, the Scripture is deep enough to form an inexhaustible mind for scholars. The perspicuity, or clarity, of Scripture resides in the fact that God intended all Scripture to be a revelation of Himself to man. And so, that's that's a good way to put it. I like the Westminster Confession of Faith. All things in Scripture are not alike plain in themselves, nor alike clear unto all. Stop there for a minute. Not everything's equally clear in the Bible, is it? Those things necessary for salvation will have the highest level of clarity, won't they? That doesn't mean that even still people won't distort and twist those. We do have cults that distort them, right? But the things that are necessary for salvation are at the highest level of clarity. But there are other things in there, aren't there? There are difficult passages. And so they're not all alike or equally plain. And some people can understand them better than others. God just gifts some people to have a clearer grasp of Scripture than other people do. But yet, keep reading in the Westminster Confession, yet those things which are necessary to be known, believed, and observed for salvation are so clearly propounded and opened in some place of Scripture or other that not only the learned but the unlearned in a due use of the ordinary means may attain unto a sufficient understanding of them. What do you think they meant, the Westminster theologians, in a due use of the ordinary means? What does that mean? Well, what do you have to do to understand the Bible? you got to read it. Okay, so you're going to start there. You've got to read it at least. It can't collect dust on your coffee table. Okay, you've got to pick it up and read it, right? Putting it under your pillow at night will not work for the Bible any better than for your French exam when you were in college or whatever. It doesn't work, okay? Number one, so we're talking about a due use of ordinary means. You have to read it But that's not all. What else do you have to do? Think about it, right? You have to stop and think about it. This is kind of important, isn't it? Some things kind of go down easily, don't they? What what would you call doctrines from the Bible that go down easily and don't require much thinking? What would you call it? If you're going to to liken it to a food group, what would you call it? Milk. There you go. What about meat? What do you got to do with meat? Well, you need to chew it. That's a due use of the ordinary means, isn't it? You've got to meditate on it. You've got to work on it. And the more you work on it, the more you'll gain. You know, Paul says in Second Timothy chapter two, he says, "Reflect on what I am saying, for the Lord will give you insight into all this." You have to pause, stop for a moment, think about it work it through, do use of the ordinary means. And then there are others as well, talking to people who have been in the Lord longer than you, people who are... Work. So it's not to say the clarity of perspective of Scripture is not that there are no tough things in the Bible. We all knew there were, but it means that those things necessary for salvation are clear to anybody. Now, I quoted this last week to a few people at the end, but I love this D.L. Moody quote. What do you do about difficult things in the Bible? A woman approached D.L. Moody and said, "Mr. Wo- Mr. Moody... What shall I do about the hard things I can't understand in the Bible? He replied, Madam, have you ever eaten chicken? Somewhat surprised, she said, yes. What did you do with the bones? Asked Moody. I put them on the side of my plate, she replied. "Uh, Then put the difficult verses there also, advised Moody. There's more than enough food to digest in the rest that you can understand. Isn't that interesting? Well, that's true only as far as it goes, okay? Work on the things you do understand, but yet everything in the Bible God intended you to have, Right? I worry sometimes. I feel like Satan's doing a work on the American mind here, especially through television, dividing and breaking up our ability to concentrate and think for long periods of time. We can't follow linear logic the way our ancestors could. We can't follow the flow of an argument. And you're going to have a hard time with Paul if you can't follow the flow of an argument, his therefores and, you know, becauses and fores and senses and all that. So much of it is in the flow of an argument, Right. And so we have to learn to stretch out our minds. What better way than memorizing and meditating on the Bible, working on it, saying, why did he say that? What is he going at? What is he getting at? How does he connect these things together? Do use of the ordinary means. We have to work at it. So D.L. Moody on the one hand, but still don't give up on the hard things either. Even the hardest, most difficult doctrines, like the sovereignty of God and salvation or some of these other hot-button issues, work on them. Work on them. I think people give up too easily sometimes. All right, why then do people misunderstand Scripture? If the Scripture's clear, why does it happen? Why does it happen? Number one, we've got to say first, it's not because there's something wrong with the Bible. It's not because there's something wrong with the Bible. If you have a controversial issue in a church and this tending toward dividing the church, please don't say it's the Bible's fault. That if the Bible had been written better, we wouldn't be having this problem. Or if we had just one more epistle with a few more verses from Paul on this topic, we'd be fine. The Bible is written just fine and everything that we need for the running of a local church is there. It's all in there. So there's nothing wrong with the Bible. There's nothing lacking. It's not like we needed a 67th book of the Bible and then everything would be fine. Some aspects of Scripture are difficult and the Second Peter 3.16 says that some of Paul's letters contain some things that are hard to understand hermeneutics is the science of scripture interpretation and it's still needed we need to interpret the bible it's not always going to be easy you got to compare one text to another you got to work at it a lot of you were in my rightly dividing class on wednesday evenings about a year ago and we we're talking about these things there's a science to the study of scripture and you have to work at it my uh, scripture professor and new testament professor said the thing with scripture is that the best cookies are on the highest shelf okay in other words the harder you work the better it gets And so don't be lazy. Work at it. Work at understanding the Scriptures. Growth and proper interpretation of Scripture is a result, therefore, of diligent hard work. Should that be any surprise to you? Isn't that God's way? I mean, there's not really shortcuts. But the only shortcut that I've read in the Bible is the day of Pentecost when they instantly knew languages they'd never studied. That was just for a day. Okay? (laughs) I know they had the gift of tongues after that, but the ability to communicate in French, I didn't get it in Japanese. I had to meet with my tutor three times a week and study for hours and hours to speak like a fourth grader or a four-year-old, actually. Um, so that is God's way. Diligent, hard work. Also, this is very important principle. Scripture interprets Scripture. The more Scripture you have built up, the better an exegete you will be. It's, you're building up a body of doctrine, aren't you? As you're reading and studying Scripture, little by little, you're building up more and more knowledge of the Bible. and So then you can interpret one Scripture by another. Second Timothy 2.15 says, Study to show yourself approved unto God a workman that needeth not in the King James to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. And thus, laziness in Bible study will, will result in wrong interpretation. <laughs> it happens. If you don't work at it, if you don't study, you're not praying, you're going to make mistakes. It does happen. Jesus said to the Sadducees, You're in error because you don't know the Scriptures. Stop right there. you You don't know the Bible. There's nothing wrong with the Bible. There's something wrong with you. You haven't studied enough yet. And so we need to keep working at things. And so if there's disagreements between two people about a doctrinal issue, what should they do other than be really nice to each other and pray together? What should they do? They should get back into the Bible because there's nothing wrong with the Bible. So therefore, one or both of them, most likely both of them, have something defective in their view of Scripture. And they need to work at that issue. And I advocate that. Absolutely. Keep working on it. Three basic reasons for false interpretation, which are the root of all doctrinal disputes. Number one, willful or sinful hardening and twisting. This is a moral failure because we can't accept what the scripture says. B ignorance of all the scripture says in the matter or of methods of proper interpretation. Or C, a failure of faith, a failure to ask for wisdom from the Spirit. I think those are the three basic things that happen. We either we can read it, but we don't like it. We don't like what it says. And so we willfully try to twist it or rearrange it or set it aside. Or secondly, we just don't know that that verse was even there. We weren't aware of this or that or the other verse. We were igno- Or we were ignorant of interpretation methods, the proper interpretation approach. And then thirdly, we didn't ask the Spirit to teach us. Practical encouragement from this doctrine from Grudem. When there are doctrinal disagreements, there are two possible causes. Seeking to make affirmations where Scripture is silent or mistakes of interpretation, see above, but we need never say the Bible is misleading or incom- incomplete. Continued diligent study by believers will produce good results. Isn't that wonderful? Keep working at it. Keep studying it. It will produce good results. The more we study, the more we work at it, the better it will get. Each individual Christian, therefore, can continue to pursue truth alone daily by careful Bible study. You won't hit a brick wall because you don't have a PhD or a personal tutor. Keep working at it. Study the Bible every day. Every single day. Note. Note remarkably vast amount of agreement on most major points of Christian doctrine. Isn't that true? I mean, isn't it true that for the most part Christians agree? I mean, you look at the the basic creeds of the faith and all that, doesn't that testify to the clarity of Scripture? You know, the Trinity, the deity of Christ, justification by faith alone, the basics of the Christian faith are in basic, basically in agreement on that. And that points, again, to the clarity of Scripture. Now, Grudem makes a living as a biblical scholar, so he needs to take time to tell us what role scholars should play, right? Do scholars then have a role? If the Bible is essentially clear, then why do we need scholars? Well, I don't, I'll do tell you one thing right away. The Bible wasn't written in English, right? How many of you are able to translate from Hebrew, American, Greek? Because if you can't, you need scholars. You know, we should not begrudge the scholars. We should thank God for them. The hand should not say to the eye, I don't need you. You know, I am so grateful for people who know how to translate. I'm grateful for the archaeologists and others that have gotten the older and older manuscripts as time has gone on. I'm thankful for the work they've done. So we should be thankful for that. But role of scholars, first of all, to teach the scriptures clearly. That's one of the things that, that you want a pastor to do is spend their full time working on scripture. You know, people talk about the Apostle Paul, for example, that he was a tent maker, and he was a tent maker, but he actually did that very uh, infrequently, uh, in Corinth when he was there he uh, began working with Priscilla and Aquila because they were tent makers they would work together but as soon as the rest of the entourage came he stopped doing that and got back to his full-time ministry and there was a benefit to that because it takes time to study the scriptures it takes time to be able to preach and teach so scholars have set, aside, set themselves aside for that purpose to be able to preach and to teach Uh, Scholars can also explore new areas of understanding by applying scriptural teaching to ever-widening areas of life, gradually uh, building a body of doctrine with each brick carefully supported by texts of scripture. I like Matthew 13.52. He said to them, Therefore, every teacher of the law who has been instructed about the kingdom is like the owner of a house who brings out of a storeroom new treasures as well as old. Isn't that wonderful? There's a lot of treasures in church history. A lot of scholars have gone before us that wrote great books, but they're sitting on the shelf somewhere and they'll be useless unless somebody takes the time to pull them off and read them. And I'm grateful for those that have gone through all those shelves, found the good books, read them, and said, this stuff's worth reading. I'm thankful for that. It saves time for us. Um, And then a scholar could defend Scripture against the attacks of false teachers, especially those who have specialized knowledge and can thus be intimidating to most believers. I know that's a ministry I have specifically to Duke students. They will go to their religion classes at Duke and they'll get devastated... (laughs) And then they'll come to me, and we talk together about um, scripture, and they're encouraged and strengthened again. This is especially true, I found at Duke, of Old Testament studies. They they just they're so vulnerable. They go through all of these things on the documentary hypothesis and all this sort of stuff, and they just and they have a, an approach. It's like, listen, you know, we're into the big leagues now, and uh, you know all the little baby stories you were told about the Bible. It's not really true. Now you're man and woman enough to take that, aren't you? It's a devastating lie. It really is. And and they don't have the wherewithal to refute them. Here are the guys with seven PhDs and all that. And it's nice to have some scholars who have taken the time to study who do love the Lord and love His Word be able to refute some of those things and say, look at how Jesus handled Scripture. Look what He thought about the Bible. Now, you've got Christ's view of Scripture and you've got your professors. Who are you going to go with? Okay, who are you going to go with? Let's trust Jesus and let's, (laughs) let's not be worried about all these little things that they're bringing up. And if you want to take the time to study each one, we'll do it, but... Let's realize the Scripture is the Word of God. Titus 1.9 says the elder must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who uh, oppose it. So an elder has to be able to refute false teaching. He's got to know the Bible well enough to do that. And then finally, a scholar can supplement the study of Scripture with additional non-scriptural insights that support the teaching of the Bible. For example, church history and others. Any questions on the clarity, the doctrine of the clarity of Scripture? Do you come? What do you think when you come to a difficult passage of Scripture? Does it bother you? When you come ac- across an issue and it's like, what do you think? What do you do? When you come across something you don't understand, what do you do? I didn't hear. Okay, so you study more, Bob. That's good. Look for some more things. You get happy. It's proof that it's the Word of God, you know. Actually, there's a lot of truth to what our brother shared. I mean, the fact is, if this if this were uh, if this is the word of God, don't you think there's an, a chance that there's something in here you can't understand? I mean, I would think that that you'd be humble enough to admit that. So that's true. It's actually encouraging. Other thoughts when you come across a, a difficult issue, a difficult passage. Pray. Pray. Ask the Spirit to open, open it. Yeah. Go ahead. What were you gonna say? Talk with my husband. Talk with her husband. Okay. <laughs> that's good. You're Ask him. He'll reveal it. Okay. Yeah. You know, Go ahead. You know one thing that hits me is I decide it's not the mm-hmm. me. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, that's so true, Gail. And and I think, to me, that's what I, I think. that It's humbling, actually. I think it's meant to be humbling. We're meant to come to it and say, I don't know. This is hard. I, I had to do that with the whole synoptic problem on Jairus's daughters. Like, I don't have any idea how to reconcile Matthew's account and Luke's. I don't know. I don't know why Matthew did what he did. Um, And I still don't. But that's okay Um, for me to say I just don't know. That is so true, Gail. Humble yourself and to pray and to say, you know, there's nothing wrong with the Bible. I need to understand more. Any other comments on the clarity of Scripture? Aren't you glad that God's given you a clear Bible and that there's benefit? Aren't you glad you live after the Reformation where you get to read it? Luther said so challenging. He said, if I have my way, he was speaking to one of his debating opponents, the plowman at his plow will know more of the Scripture than you do you know they were hiding the scriptures from the common people and what a tragedy what a tragedy to me one of the most tragic probably the most tragic book in the entire bible is the book of judges you read the book of judges have you ever read through there it is a mess it is a mess isn't it I and mean, the stuff that happens in there is well you can't read it to your kids i mean it's just it's really disgusting and I think that one of the main themes, certainly the theme that the book itself gives several times, is in, that, in those days, Israel had no king, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. That's a basic foundation. But I think a secondary theme is the failure of the Levites to teach the people the Bible. Okay? Levites are actually a big theme in the book of Judges. Remember, one of the families hires a Levite to be their own personal private Levite, and so he's on the take all the time and all that. Why so much about the Levites? Well, it was their job to get the scriptures into the minds of the people. This is especially true before the printing press was invented. Do you understand that? How many copies of the Bible do you think there were floating around in Israel? Not really that many. So they needed specialized people who would take their full time studying the Bible and teaching it to the people, and they didn't do it. And look what happened. I think that Israel looked very much like the pagan nations before them. You know, the whole account, you know, toward the end there is very similar to the earlier account with Sodom and Gomorrah. It's very similar, and I think it's meant to be similar because God's people become like Sodom and Gomorrah when they don't know the Bible. So praise God. You've got the printing press now. You've got Zondervan and all these other companies. However ungodly their their other deals are, they're printing the Bible. They're cranking it out, and we have it, and you can read it, and you should. All right, let's look at the next characteristic of Scripture, and that is necessity, necessity. What do we need the Bible for? For what purposes is the Bible necessary? How much can the people know God know about God without the Bible? First of all, explanation and scriptural basis. The necessity of Scripture may be defined as follows. The necessity of Scripture means that the Bible is necessary for knowing the gospel and for maintaining spiritual life and for knowing God's will. But it is not necessary for knowing that God exists or for knowing that something about God's character and moral laws. In other words, there are some things you can only get from the Bible. There are some things you can get from sources other than the Bible. Okay? The Bible is necessary for knowledge of the gospel. Take a minute and look at Romans chapter ten, verse thirteen through seventeen. 30, somebody read this for me. 13-17. through 17, Romans 10, 13-17.
0: <laughs> for whoever will call upon
1: the name of the Lord will be saved. How then shall they call upon him in whom they have not believed? And how should they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they are sent? Just as it is written, How beautiful are the feet of those who bring glad tidings of good things. However, they did not all heed the glad tidings. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? So faith comes from hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ. Thank you. All right, he starts out with this famous statement, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Now, in Paul's writing, the Lord is Jesus. The Lord is Jesus Christ. And so he means that everyone who calls on Christ to be their personal Savior will be saved. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But he goes on there in verse 14 and says, how then can they call on the one they have not believed in? So they will not call on Jesus unless they believe in him. So you believe first, then you call on him. That's how it works. You're going to believe and then you're going to call on him uh, for salvation. But then he goes one step before that. How can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear unless someone preaches to them? And how can they preach unless they are sent? Does this not imply that people out at the end of the world or in different other places cannot gain information about the gospel unless someone comes and tells them? Is that not the logic? Doesn't it fall apart? Doesn't Paul, Paul's entire train of thought here fall apart if, if somebody living in Erie and Stone Age tribe, can find out enough about the gospel to be saved apart from the Bible? Yes, it falls apart. And so therefore, you must have the Bible in order to have the gospel. Do you see that? Somebody must preach to you about Jesus. Faith comes from hearing About Jesus. And so he has locked it up into what we call the foolishness of preaching, the salvation of the world. So, in order to have a knowledge of the gospel, we must have Scripture, we must have the Bible, we must have someone come tell us about Jesus. Okay? Peter at his trial in Acts 4.12 said it's on the Sanhedrin there is salvation in no other name for there is no other name given under heaven and men by which we must be saved Acts 4.12 and so there is this one name Jesus Christ and people must hear that name they must hear preaching about that name they must hear preaching about Christ in order to be saved you must have the Bible then in order to have the gospel the Bible is necessary for salvation in one sense either sorry either Somebody must read the gospel message from the Bible or hear it from another person. So you're either going to have the scripture or somebody's going to come tell you. And apart from that, there will be no salvation. So number one, what is the Bible necessary for? It is necessary for the gospel. And I've said before, you know, this is one of the interesting things about the struggle in the Southern Baptist denomination over inerrancy and all that sort of stuff. What they they want to do is they want to say, give me Jesus, I don't need the Bible. I just want Jesus. You make it all so complicated. And by the way, you're worshiping the Bible. You're bibliolaters, they call us, all right? Well, I want, to, I want to ask, tell me something you know about Jesus apart from the Bible. You cannot separate them. Didn't God marry the two together when He said in the beginning was the Word and He called the Word Jesus Christ? It's the same. You don't know a thing about Jesus apart from the Bible. We talked about that when I talked about Christ in the Scriptures. And so we must have the Bible in order to have Jesus, in order to know anything about Jesus. Secondly, the Bible is necessary for maintaining spiritual life. Look at First uh, Peter um, chapter 1. 1 Peter 1, verse 23, yeah, verse 23 through 25, somebody read this for me, if you would. Isn't that important? Look at that. Verse 23 says you have been born again, but it tells you how you were born again. How do, How are you born again according to verse 23? By the word of God, by the living and enduring word of God, like a seed that came into your soul and it's been bearing good fruit ever since. Okay, so and it says in verse 25, this is the word that was what? Preached to you. So you hear a message. It was preached to you. You hear it and you believe it. And so the Word of God is essential to that whole process. To be born again, you must hear the proclamation of the gospel, right? You must, be, you must have uh, the Word of God. But we're making the point now that the Bible is necessary for maintaining spiritual life. Keep reading. Chapter 2, verse 1 and 2, uh, 1 through 3. Therefore, therefore... Oh, what's the therefore, therefore? Well, it's a connection to what we just read, right? Therefore, since you were born again by the Word of God, which never dies... The living and enduring word of God for all men are like grass and all their f- glories like the flower. Since you've been born again that way, therefore, since that's true of you, rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. Look at verse 2. Like newborn babies crave pure spiritual milk so that by it you may grow up in your salvation now that you've tasted that the Lord is good. This has got to be about the Bible. Do you see the context there? Verse 2, what is that pure spiritual milk? It is the Word of God. It is the milk of the Word. Those things that go down easily, drink them, take them in when you're a spiritual babe. Now that you've become a Christian, now that you're a believer, take in the Bible so that you can do what? What does the verse say? So you can grow up. Are you expected to grow? Oh, yes. It isn't enough just to walk the aisle. It isn't enough just to pray the prayer. You need to grow now. And how are you going to grow? What does the Bible say? What is the means appointed for your growth? The Bible, diligent study of the Word of God. And no other means, folks. That's how you grow. You take in the Bible. You just drink it in. You just read it and you study it. The Bible, therefore, is necessary for maintaining spiritual life. Matthew 4.4 4, Man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. And so we've got to have the Scripture... Thirdly, the Bible is necessary for certain knowledge of God's will. You must have the Bible in order to have certain knowledge of God's will. What do we mean by certain? Well, to know for sure what God loves, what he esteems, what he wants you to do. It says in Ephesians, we should find out what pleases the Lord. That's like a scavenger hunt, isn't it? Let's find out. Let's go through the Bible. Let's find all the verses. Matthew six, or Malachi 6.8. Sorry, Micah 6.8. He has shown you, O oh man, what is good. And what the Lord requires of you, but to do justice, to love mercy, and walk humbly with your God. Write them down. Do justice, love mercy, walk humbly with your God. Micah 6:8. Okay. This is the one I esteem: he who is humble and contrite in spirit trembles at my word. Humble, contrite in spirit, trembles at my word. You can just go through and find the verses where God tells you what He wants you to do and be. Okay. How about this? Suppose you just have this. Suppose you just have this verse or this word. Find out what pleases the Lord. You have no Bible. You have no Bible. Just go out there in the world and find out what God likes. What are you going to do? Well, I could look inward to my conscience. I could try to find out based on my conscience what God likes and what he doesn't like. Is that a sure and certain guide? Not at all. Out there near in Jaya, there's probably some stone age person right now, the gospel hasn't reached yet, feeling guilty that they didn't offer a certain sacrifice to a God today. They didn't follow their religion. Their conscience is blaming them for not following their religion. Is the conscience a sure and certain guide of the plans and the purposes of God? Not at all. So you must have the Bible in order to know what pleases God. You must have the Bible in order to have a certain knowledge of what God loves and what He, um, what He wants for you. But the Bible is not necessary for knowing that God exists. You don't need the Bible to know that God exists. How am I going to prove that? Well, look in the Bible. Romans chapter one, verse nineteen through twenty-one. Look at Romans one. All right, Romans one. I'm actually going to start at verse eighteen. It says, "The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that men are without excuse." For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. What do those verses tell you you can know um, about God apart from the Bible? You can know that he exists, that he is a creator. What else can you know? Powerful. That he's powerful. His power is... How could you know from, from without the Bible that God is Powerful. Earthquake, hurricane—that's right. Burnt, he, sustains he sustains things. The burning of the sun, generation after generation, giving heat. And and you just think God. There must be a God, a creator. You know. By the way, atheism has to be learned. You know that. Out and out in the bush somewhere, people believe in a creator. They do. You have to learn atheism in the halls of a university. Okay. But the fact of the matter is, our natural state is to believe that there is a creator. Okay. So what may be known about God is plain because God has made it plain to them. Uh, Psalm 19.1 says, The heavens declare the glory of God and the skies proclaim the work of His hands. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they display knowledge. There is no speech or language where their voice is not heard. Their voice goes out unto all the earth. Their words to the ends of the world. Just look up at the sky. Look at the stars. That's what God did with Abraham. Who created all these? Right? Who made all these? They know. There's a creator. They know. They know more than that, though, don't they? You look at at the end of chapter one of Romans, okay, verse
0: thirty-two. Somebody read Romans one thirty-two. Right, anyway.
1: right. So the Bible there in one thirty-two says what? What do people know? according to Romans one thirty-two, They know of God's righteousness and His decree against sin. And so they have a sense inside their hearts that they are what? That they're guilty. They have a sense of sin. And this is true. All over the world, there is a sense of sin within the heart of people. They know that they do wrong. They know it. Most pagan religions have some kind of sacrificial system or something set up to expiate guilt, to deal with it. Okay, They know that they do wrong. Also look at Romans 2, verse 14 and uh, 15. It says, Indeed, when Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature things required by the law, they are a law for themselves, even though they do not have the law. Verse 15, Since they show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their consciences also bearing witness in their thoughts, now accusing, now even defending them. God has written some of his moral law on the heart of every single human being, hasn't he? And and it's reflected in cultures. For example, aren't many of the Ten Commandments reflected in every single culture all over the world? You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal or lie. These things are, are in every culture. Well, why? Because God has written it on our hearts. So the basic moral requirements of God, you can know, without having the bible okay so therefore there is a distinction between in theology between special revelation and general revelation general re- revelation is given to everybody creation the internal conscience the law of god written on the hearts that everybody has special revelation is given to those who have the book the jews first and then those as the gospel's gone out we have the scriptures that's specialized knowledge But you don't need the Scriptures in order to know first that God exists, that He's powerful. You can know certain of His attributes, that He's loving or generous. You can figure those things out by looking at creation. You can also figure out that we are guilty because we have not lived up to God's moral law. These are some various things that we can know, the necessity of Scripture. However, basic bottom line is we've got to get the Gospel out there. You understand that? Because there is no salvation out there. There's condemnation for them. Romans 1 is all about condemnation. It's not about salvation. There is no salvation out there apart from the gospel. If there is salvation out there apart from the gospel, then Romans 10, how can they believe in the one of whom they have not hear, heard and how can they hear unless they, uh, you know, somebody preaches and how can they preach unless they're sent? That whole argument falls apart. If the person at the end of the earth or on the island somewhere has enough to be saved without the Bible then we ought to leave them alone. We really should. We should not go preach to them. You know why? Because most people, when they hear the gospel, what do they do with it? They rebel and reject it. Okay? So if there is a path of salvation apart from hearing the gospel, we ought to leave them alone. Right? Because all we're going to do is bring them condemnation if they were just fine without the gospel. But Paul does not say they are fine. He says they're under the wrath of God and they need the gospel message they must hear the gospel in order to be saved. Are you reading that? You see that out of Romans 1? There is no salvation. There's no nothing except from the hearing of the gospel. So the Bible is necessary, the necessity of scripture for the hearing of the gospel. Any questions about the necessity of scripture? Okay, let's look at the final attribute and that is the sufficiency of scripture. Look at 2nd Peter chapter 1 verse 3 and 4. The sufficiency of scripture, by the way, is one of the main kind of not pet peeves, but pet topics I have these days, especially in the concerning pastoral ministry. I've said before, last few weeks I'll say it again, there is a general attack right now, not conscious I think, although it may be conscious in some cases, on the sufficiency of Scripture. Many churches, evangelical churches, no longer practically believe in the sufficiency of Scripture. They're turning away from the sufficiency of Scripture. It's not enough for the pastor simply to explain the Bible. He must be an entertainer. He must be relational. He must be a manager. He, you know, they, they listed back in 1934 the, the basic responsibilities of the pastoral ministry. They came up with five. In the 1960s, it had increased to 12. Now it's up to 19. There was a poll done. 19 basic responsibilities for pastoral ministry. Teaching was like number eight on the list teaching and preaching of the Word. They want the pastor to be relational. They want him to be a good manager, good administrator, um, kind of a psychological healer type, counselor, this kind of thing. There's many, many requirements. Do you see that all of this is basically turning away from the sufficiency of Scripture? The Bible is not enough. We must have more things. Look at churches these days. All right? There is a sense in churches that we want entertainment. We want to kind of pattern ourselves after the world. We want to have more and more things to catch the eye and to, and to beguile the ear. Right? And why? Because a simple, clear exposition of the Word is not enough. It's not enough. We've got to have more things. And I think it's really tragic for evangelical churches that uphold the inerrancy of Scripture and the Bible to then practically deny the sufficiency of Scripture. Yes, the Bible's inerrant, but we really need more. We need the writings of the top psychologist and author these days or whoever. We need something in addition to the Bible that's not enough. Well, I think the Bible is enough. I think it is sufficient. It is sufficient. Look at Second Peter chapter 1 verse 3 and and 4 somebody read these for me if you would Okay. Verse 3 says, His divine power has given us, listen, everything we need. Everything we need. And if you read it in context with verse 4, through the Word of God, through His promises, through His great and precious promises, you have everything you need. Everything you need for what? What does the verse say? For life and godliness. That's everything you need for life and godliness through the Scripture. What is life? I think it's eternal life. I think it's coming to faith in Jesus Christ. It's salvation. What is... Uh, godliness well it's sanctification growth in Christ so that we are to be like Jesus the Bible sufficient for that yes the Bible is sufficient for life and for godliness we don't need anything more and so we have the f- sufficiency of Scripture Sufficiency of Scripture means that the Scripture contained all the words of God that he intended his people to have at each stage of redemptive history and that it now contains all the words of God we need for salvation for trusting him perfectly and for obeying him perfectly we can find, as we study in Scripture, everything that God wants us to know about every topic found in the Bible. You understand that? Any topic, you have everything you need to know about that topic. Now, you may want to know more things. Your curiosity may go beyond Scripture, and that's fine, okay? Read the Left Behind series. If you want to go beyond Scripture. You're know, get all the speculation you could ever want, all right? Um, but your curiosity may be, But everything you need is in the Bible. It's... it's it is sufficient. It is, it is complete. You don't need any more than that. Now, in this way, we differ from Roman Catholic theologians who bring in other sources of authority, right? They're going to bring in revelations from the Pope or different things from councils, and they're going to supplement the Scriptures. We don't need that. Um, we believe that the Bible is sufficient. Now, the amount of Scripture at each stage of redemptive history was good enough. For the Jews, when they entered the Promised Land, they had the first five books of Moses. That was good enough for them at that point. He didn't want them to have the prophets or anything. They had enough. And, and little by little, he added to the canon. He added to the revelation. Now we have the whole thing. We have the whole 66 books and we have everything that we need. Now there's some practical applications of this. Number one, the sufficiency of Scripture should encourage us as we try to discover what God would have us to think or do about anything. You see what I'm saying? You don't need to go and buy 75 different books. You really don't. If you have a good translation of the of the Bible, you've got everything you need on any topic. Isn't that exciting? Plus a concordance. You may want to get a concordance. No, i do not kidding. But, I mean, if you have patience enough, it's all there. The sufficiency of Scripture means you don't need another book. Yeah, go ahead. In other words, do you need the church in order to rightly interpret the scripture? Well, I think there is a benefit from being in a body. And so we benefit from teachers. You know, the, like I said, the hand cannot say to the eye, I don't need you. So we do need each other. But I wouldn't want to go so far as to say that an individual Christian filled with the spirit needs anything else to gain the truth okay frequently you know you just that's where it all starts anyway is with a luther studying up in his in his study and he begins seeing things that are there and then takes it from the study and and teaches the others so he was sufficient he himself sitting in his chair with his with the bible and the indwelling spirit was enough there was no need for more that's a good question and connected i think to some of our earlier discussions on orthodoxy very important um Lifelong growth in understanding Scripture will thus include growth and in the skill of rightly understanding the Bible's teachings and applying them to specific questions. Number two, the sufficiency of Scripture reminds us that we are to add nothing to Scripture and we are to consider no other writings of equal value to the Scripture. I love the Puritans, but we don't need the Puritans in order to understand the Scriptures. The, the Scripture is sufficient. I like to read them. I like to read Luther. I like to read Calvin. I like to read Jonathan Edwards. I like to read these other guys, but we don't have to have them. Scripture is sufficient. We don't need to add anything to it. Sufficiency of Scripture also tells us that God does not require us to believe everything or anything about Himself and His redemptive work that's not found in Scripture. In other words, if it's not in here, you don't need to believe it. You see what I'm getting at? I don't care what the National Enquirer tells you about the lost Gospels of Jesus. You don't need them, okay? They're not in here. And so you're not going to be held accountable. It's kind of like, you know how when you're going to have a test? Now, it's what are we going to be tested on? Okay, I need to know. Is it going to be you know what seven books or whatever? Don't you want to know what you're going to be tested on? Here it is, this, and nothing else. You, what you need to think and to believe is found in this in this book. Now I want to make one final comment. This makes this uh, I think gives us an insight also in the, into the charismatic or the Pentecostal movement, especially in the area of prophecy. Right we don't need any additional prophecies for life and godliness. I'm not saying that the prophecies you see in the scripture, like for example, when Agabus said there would be a famine, that was beneficial to the people to know, but it's not necessary for life and godliness. So I'm not in any way denying that the gift of prophecy can continue. I'm not saying that's a whole different topic for another day. What I'm saying is we don't need prophets to come here and tell us things other than what's written in the scripture. Everything you need for life and godliness is in this book. Any final questions or comments or thoughts about what we've covered? We've looked at the authority of Scripture and inerrancy. We've talked about the perspicuity or clarity of Scripture—that the Scripture is clear. You don't need some specialized scholar or specialized training. Okay, but that doesn't mean you don't need to work at it. Okay. We've talked about the uh, the necessity of Scripture, what Scripture is necessary for, what you must have the Bible for, and what you don't need the Bible for, and then the sufficiency of Scripture. All right. Any comments? questions thank you for your patience tonight i wanted to get through this thing because next week next time god willing we're going to get into the doctrine of god and we're going to talk about the attributes of god and just who he is but this is a great place to start isn't it so now that we have the scripture under us as a foundation we're going to be able to build and see the edifice of systematic theology just rising before us landis would you mind closing this
0: thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org